Welcome into Natchez Glen House Stories. I'm going to say this right off the top for people at the beginning here. This is going to be a bit of a both sides now Joni Mitchell conversation. As we know, I've created this series recently, Is It All Flowers? And what I really wanted to explore here is how flowers live in this incredibly picturesque world visually on social media. And most of the time, it sort of is all flowers, people. But there's some real subject matter here. And so far, we've explored it in a domestic sense. And what are people actually selling? Are they selling flowers? Are they selling the ideal of you being able to grow flowers and those people profiting through selling you workshops, both in floral design or in flower farming? But today, we're going to get into, I think, maybe the most unspoken of this entire category which is internationally grown flowers and what's going on there and how we got here. There's names in this world that people probably have never heard of. Edgar Wells, David Cheever. These were people that early on saw there was an opportunity and we'll talk about how we got there. So my guest this week is Nate Miller and Nate has spent a lot of time on this subject, far more than I have. He's been working in Colombia with people. And Nate, I want to have you be the one that maybe gives us a little bit of a backstory here of how did the cut flower trade and and sort of the, the shorthand form of this, how did the cut flower trade land in Colombia? Hi, Steve. Uh, Thanks for having me on. Um, So the interesting the, the kind of journey from California and Florida and uh, other places in America to the place we are now, where the majority of flowers that American consumers uh, purchase actually come from Colombia, is an interesting one. So um, the first flowers actually arrived on a jetliner from Bogota to Miami on October 18th in 1965. Um, that was the first import of Colombian flowers. It was worth about $20,000. And then throughout the 1960s, um, kind of because the Americans were a bit concerned about uh, potential communism growing in Colombia, they actually started pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into grants to develop agricultural sectors, including um, the flower industry in Colombia. At the same time, in 1967, as you mentioned, uh, David Cheever, who's largely considered the godfather of Colombian flowers, um, he published a master's thesis about uh, Bogota and how it could be the cut flower exporter for the world markets. Um, He identified some really key things. One was that Bogota is close to the equator, and so there's going to be 12 hours of sunshine a day. There's very fertile soil there. It's cooler weather because Bogota is in the savannah up in the mountains. And um, also labor's much cheaper there. And so um, he wrote this thesis. It influenced a lot of people. He went on to sort of start this very influential company. And then by 1966, we're seeing jobs where uh, flower workers in California or Florida were earning $16 an hour, are now going down to Colombia where they're earning uh, just 82 cents an hour. Um, You know, today, Colombia controls about 
uh, upwards of 70% of the market of flowers in the United States. So if you go to a grocery store or a gas station or a bodega, um, likely your flowers are going to be coming from the savannah uh, of Bogota. Um, th th there were a few kind of key steps that helped move the flower industry into the powerhouse that it is today in Colombia. Um, in 1991, the U.S. Congress lifted tariffs on a number of agricultural resources so that um, you could import flowers tax-free from Colombia to the United States. Um, part of this was because they wanted to make sure that people were not uh, doing more illicit activities like producing coca and other sort of um, illegal drugs. And let me let me pause you on yeah. that for a second, Nate, because this is something that that I've wondered in researching this topic and, and trying to figure this out. Mm -hmm. So, in doing your research for this, and if you didn't get th that far down this rabbit hole, because I think this is probably a rabbit hole, Nate. Sure. Did this effort? Because this was sort of the the thesis that you mentioned that okay, if we create the uh, the Andean trade. Preference Act in 1991 that that would give Colombia another agricultural crop and reduce maybe the production of coca, which then was produced as cocaine. Did it actually have any impact? I mean, you've obviously spent a lot of time in Colombia. Is it less, you know, in a superficial sense, is it less relevant? Did it make any kind of impact or difference? You know, um, I'd say that. I, I'm not the most qualified person to answer that. I would say a few things. One is that um, most of the way that they tried to eradicate drugs there was by um, having an ongoing and raging war with the um, drug producers there, um, burning down coca fields. And yeah, I mean, I, I think that it, it, it's plausible that um, some of this um, production in this new space perhaps did open up opportunities for people. Um, you know, if you can get a good job, perhaps you're less likely to um, participate in the drug trade. But um, most of the way that they have tried to attack the drug trade is definitely through military force. Um which, which is which is really amazing here because I you know this is such a complicated thing to unravel a little bit, Nate. I'm sure you have some similar feelings here. Mm -hmm. On on the one hand, this this is hard to define. Is this plan that we see developing in you know as far back to the 60s and then into the 90s? Is this a well-intentioned plan? Is there what feels almost like there's more nefarious something below it, Nate? Um, on face value, the story is like what we're talking about that, well, we wanted um, job creation in Colombia to take away from the other job, which was working in the drug trade. And yet, in looking back on it now, it doesn't feel like that probably happened. The, the drug trade is probably still prevalent the, and yeah. didn't really impact. And like you're saying, at the same time, we're saying this sort of, again, flowery version of the story. Yet we're actually really using military enforcement to actually try to hinder the drug trade. Yeah, I mean, 
many thousands of people were, were killed and are still killed in this war. And um, I mean, I, I think that it, it, it it's certainly not something that is well, completely 100% well intentioned just for the sort of well-being of Colombians. I mean, to be clear, almost all the owners of the farms in Colombia are American companies. Um, it's not sort of this um, just purely goodwill thing that they're doing in order to help the average person. And we'll get into a little bit about a lot of the difficulties that people face and the sort of um, ways that they created laws to make sure that capital flowed very well to the companies, but not very much to the workers of the communities who were impacted. And I mean, I think perhaps for Americans, one of the most famous examples is um, of the Colombian flower industry is if you've seen the movie Maria Full of Grace, it starts out in the protagonist in the film is working on a flower farm and her conditions are awful. And um, she's being sexually abused by her manager. And then some guy essentially convinces her to smuggle drugs, drugs to the United States. Um, and that's not really that different now. I mean, if you were offered, you, you could definitely get a lot more money than the sort of bare minimum wage uh, that you're offered in the flower industry by working in the drug trade. So there's not a huge economic incentive not to participate necessarily. I think that the um, burning of all the coca plants and huge amounts of military money had had much more of an impact on that. So let's, let's get to that, what you just mentioned. And this was one of the things for me that I, I wanted to explore here. Cause I feel like we're, we've got two paths. I want to have a setup because so many people don't understand the entire industry of cut flowers and what we're dealing with. And then we're going to talk about the actual human beings that are impacted by this. Sure. So most of the, the farms, I'm going to, I'm using finger quotes mm -hmm. here, Nate, but most of the farms there are at least there's us interest in as far as us companies or business uh, people own, or at least heavily invested in. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, the, Two largest producers, Elite Flower Farms and Sunshine Bouquets, are both owned by Americans. And um, they have, it's interesting because they have company, companies in Colombia that report a certain amount of income. And then they have other American companies and they sell the flowers maybe for, I don't know, $5 for a box of 25 to themselves in the American version of themselves. And then they, sell that for a much larger profit. Um, there are a few older farms that are Colombian, but definitely the majority of them are from the States and they have a vertically integrated system in which um, they can plant, produce, cut, ship, receive, and sell to uh, markets, everything in-house. Which is really one of, because one of the numbers that I have seen is that the Colombian flower trade now is approximately over a billion dollars. But then as you sort of trace that number, that it actually increases and could be upwards of $10 billion. I found a very disturbing uh, 2015 USDA uh, created report on the Colombian flower trade that I believe the 
term used in it was $10 billion along the value chain, again, in finger quotes. Mm -hmm. And that process, is that really what has allowed the economy of flowers there to really grow? That these same companies that are growing the flowers also then either under the same company or a subsidiary company also import them to Miami in in the cases of flowers. So they're literally owning the entire chain. Is that is that sort of what we're looking at now? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely what we're looking at. I mean, I I put out a report in 2016 that had a number that was upwards of one billion dollars. But that was only for what the Colombian company, the Colombian version of the American companies are making. Um, I, in terms that once they sell to the United States, it really becomes exponential and um, their, their profits in the States are much more. My friends in Colombia will tell me that they're actually extremely frustrated because a lot of the sort of tax revenue and uh, money that should be going into the communities is not because uh, they sell them at such a low rate to themselves in the States and that um, they're actually seeing very little benefits to the larger society. Which again, all of this is very interesting because as I told Nate before we started recording, one of my big motivators to have this conversation was, and I've said this throughout this series on Is It All Flowers? The imagery of flowers is flowery, people. None of us want to associate something negative to that. None of us want to go, oh, wow, where did that flower come from? Who grew that flower? What, why is this flower only 50 cents per stem? How is this even possible? But yet, that's again what we're seeing here, that most of what we're talking about is the imagery of flowers. But behind that, there are real stories going on that impact both economies and people. How many people? ballpark, Nate, are employed in Colombia in the cut flower trade? Directly employed working at the farms or at the processing factory, it's about 130,000. 130,000 people. Now, is there any kind of program, I'm guessing is the word I'm going to use, where these companies leverage that workforce and bring them over to the United States in the... uh, in the companies they may own in Miami as far as like sorting and processing once they get imported into the States or do they try to keep those two things very separate from each other? No, those are totally separate. And I can explain sort of how it works from planting uh, or in the case of roses, cloning a rose to how it gets on a jetliner, if you like. Um, Yeah, that would be great. Let's let's walk through that because that for me is one of the things we've got to really understand here and then we're going to get to the subject of how this is happening that we can have a rose that goes on this journey but you walk into a grocery store and yet somehow this dozen roses i even saw this past valentine's day a dozen roses was only retailing for six dollars so so do walk us through that process nate okay so um if you ever have the opportunity to go to columbia and i'd encourage all your listeners to do it because despite us talking about some of the more gnarly aspects of the working conditions, um, it is a great country. So say you're flying into Bogota, you'll fly there. And what you'll notice upon arriving, um, getting close is you look out the window and 
everywhere you look, there are greenhouses just blanketing the landscape. Um, outside of the city, just everywhere, there's these huge greenhouses. And on them, um, there's farms. Some farms will have a dozen greenhouses. The larger ones will have hundreds of them. And then inside of those greenhouses, there are um, there are flower beds. And there's some, something like, um, what is it? Uh, 240,000 flowers can be produced on one hectare of land. They've gotten really good at uh, at maximizing their space, and um, the inside there's lots of people who are working first uh, cloning the uh, roses, and then soon after they're cutting them. And um, a worker will be responsible during not even peak time, like Valentine's or Mother's Day, to cut as many as over three thousand roses a day. So. The first thing they do is they cut them. And then immediately um, in the sort of larger facilities, what will happen is they go to a uh, processing plant. So first they wash them and then they are um, sorted and they're classified. So depending on how large the stem, how long the stem is, how large the bud is, they are sorted very quickly. So there's a person who's sitting on an assembly line with maybe 800 other people in a room that is. 36 degrees, you have a what's called the cold chain, where it's always extremely cold in the room as soon as it's cut. And the flowers are dethorned, and then they're very rapidly sorted by um, a person. Another person then goes and um, takes a collection of 25, which are the same size, maybe 55 centimeters would um, be a size. They'll wrap 25 of them together. And then that goes to um, another place where they're, they're boxed. And this is all in a very cold room. Then cold trucks go and take them to a, um, an airport in Bogota where they're flown on a 747 and arrive in Miami often less than 48 hours um, or 72 hours after they've initially been cut. Um, from there, they're shipped all over the U.S. in uh, trucks that are refrigerated. And um, within less than a week from the time that it, the flower was cut, you can have them in your house and buy them at Walgreens or Whole Foods or, you know, wherever. So we're dealing with a product that is, is perishable. Mm-hmm. I know there's been a tremendous amount of breeding work done in the cut flower sector to increase uh, shelf life essentially on these mm-hmm. plants so l- let's get down to we've sort of painted this picture of, of a bit of the, the bigger version of the economy of flowers and we've got a snapshot of the process i'm one let, let's let's put people in the actual uh, position of being someone who works on a cut flower farm in Colombia. nate how many hours am i working in a week if I work at one of these flower farms. Okay. So that, that definitely depends a little bit on what time of year it is. Um, let, let, let me back up for a second. I'll give you kind of an idea of, let me frame it. And, um, so I, when I, I work in Colombia for, with an NGO called Paso International that 
our basic mission is to protect labor leaders who are at risk of death threats or um, just having the kind of work that they do um, impeded by companies, right? So um, in 2013, when we founded the organization, over half the people in the world who were assassinated for um, being labor leaders were killed in Colombia. Um, so for a lot of the projects that we work on, if we work in the ports, we will work with the uh, ILWU, who's a uh, West Coast Port Union, and they'll support workers in Buenaventura, Colombia to um, be able to do their work without fear of getting a bullet in their head for trying to organize a union or getting shot in the face with a tear gas canister or having their families uh, receive death threats, all of which um, happened. Uh, and I, I've seen that happen. Um, so, so Nate, let me, let me pause you here real quick as you're uh, sharing this. Yeah. You know, and, and I think this is the, the challenge here of what we're talking about with so many issues. And I'm, I'm sure you, you've thought about this. What you've just said is terrifying, mm-hmm. right? terrifying as a U.S. citizen. Yeah, that we are we are talking about. You're not talking about anything more than someone saying, "Hey, um, my workplace, where I'm at, it's not so great. We should all get together and potentially do something about this." And you're saying, in Colombia, you're literally your life could be in danger for doing this. Yeah, and it often is. So it's. Um yeah, I, I mean, in 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 the ports, there's people who are, um, you know, being assassinated. In the oil workers, led a big strike a few years ago. Uh, a man named Milton Rivas was uh, assassinated for striking, and then the five people who were leading a strike of ten thousand people were imprisoned for supposedly kidnapping all of their coworkers who went on strike. Um, I, I, I guess I just say these things to sort of paint a panorama because the flower industry doesn't operate in a bubble. The part of the reason that it's down there um, in that it's thriving and able to have this cheap labor is because some of the institutions are so weak that um, if people make an attempt to speak up for themselves or um, collectively try to improve their situation in any way, they can experience some really terrible um hardships and um so well that that's one of the things in researching for this nate that struck me there are so many fluff pieces on this subject that so much of what i would find in research was just how great this is and how fantastic this is and there's even a photo op from uh, i think 2013 of joe biden at a flower farm and it's it, the the report I mentioned by the USDA is is completely positive on this subject, and that was actually going to be one of the questions I had for you. But I think you just gave it to us that if you work at one of these places and you're experiencing some of these things that we're going to cover, you're not going to say anything. No, you're you're not. And um, you you know, if you do attempt to say anything, you can experience. I mean you'll probably almost immediately be terminated and we we can get into that. I can definitely give you a lot of examples of people who have made attempts to kind of speak up for themselves because they are working to the point where their arm is about to fall off or they, um, 
you know, would just like to earn a little bit more in order to feed their families or they don't want to be sexually harassed. And um, immediately the companies will fire them. If more people are involved, they'll literally shut the company down and then a week later put up a new sign and say, um, now we're called something else and we fired all these workers. Um, you know, I, I'm a labor organizer in the States and it, it's really day and night. I mean, here people are concerned about oh, maybe I'll have a bad relationship with my manager or if I try to form a union, maybe the boss will find some sneaky way to get rid of me. But um, yeah, it's very different in Colombia. So I think you did a great job painting that and giving us that perspective of it. Mm -hmm. So we're working on one of these flower farms you, you mentioned there's going to be a peak season, clearly, uh, you know, obviously during Valentine's Day is one of those, Mother's Day, those type periods. So what's my general work week as far as hours go? Let's get back to that. So um, the generally, a flower worker who's not working during peak time is working 45 hours a week um, if they don't take any overtime, which often they do. Um, but that, that would be sort of like the bare minimum that people are working. That's, uh, Monday through Friday, eight hours, and then an additional five hours on Saturday. But, um, generally people pick up overtime, uh, in Colombia, there's a law that you can't really work more than 60 hours of overtime or 60 hours per week. Um, but when you get to times like Valentine's day or mother's day, that escalates extremely. And so um, we did this big research project where we interviewed 425 workers um, with flower workers. Flower workers developed the research project and then um, went door to door to other workers' houses in high density flower working areas. And the survey results that we got was that the average time for the average work week during Mother's Day or Valentine's Day is about 84 hours per week that someone is working. Um, and well, that, Which is incredible yeah. for anybody to think of. And, and we're going to, so I want everyone who listens, we have so many people that listen that are passionate about gardening or flowers or floral trade, floral design, all of these things. I want you to think about it. I, I, I'm not saying all of you people, I'm not throwing shade at all of you as a population, but some of you. You know, we're complaining if we're doing a 50-hour work week and we're doing repetitive tasks and we're out there. Someone will complain that, you know, I had such a big wedding installation this week. Mm -hmm. 84 hours a week. And that was the average. Some were working over 100. Um, so it, it, 84 hours was standard. And then um, many people were working over 100. One woman said that she worked, you know, over 120 hours per week. So um, that also is not necessarily completely voluntary. Um, I, I think it's kind of important to note the way that people are employed in the flower industry is a bit different than in the States. So, um, if you go to get a job in the United States, you go to your place that you work and they hire you and then you get a paycheck and it says it's from your work. Maybe you have a subcontractor. But in Colombia, it's really differently. Um, take Elite Farms, for example, that uh, is the largest producer and has about 8,000 employees. 
pretty much everyone who works there is not an employee of Elite Flowers. They work for um, one of over 40 subcontracting companies. And then sometimes even those guys uh, subcontract below them. And so when you go to work there, you get a contract for six months or a year. And even though you may have been working at Elite Flowers for 20 or 30 years, you don't actually have um, an employment relationship with them. And that becomes a real problem when, say, you get hurt. If you have to work uh, 80 or 90 or 100 hours in a week, um, what happens is that workers have extremely high rates of torn rotator cuffs, carpal tunnels, and um, other occupational health diseases. And um, as soon as their bodies kind of break down, Elite Flowers is not their employer. And so they say, we're not responsible for um, this worker because they don't work here. And um, even though there are laws that say um, you have to pay a worker disability if they get hurt on the job, um, the, the companies are not responsible for them because they're not actually their employer. Um, does that make sense? Yes. So what we're essentially doing is we're creating these subsidiary companies to have them be the ones who employ them, but we're not actually saying they're employed by the parent company. And the companies that they're working for are almost like subcontractors, like an independent contractor in the United States. And yet they're doing the hours of an employee essentially for the company. And so when something happens, I don't have any, I can't take any recourse because they're alleging I'm not even employed by them. Exactly. And um, often, the, for example, Colombian, Columbia has a law that says that if you're doing core missional uh, work that permanently needs to be done at the um, facility, that you actually have to be directly employed. But um, there's less than 400 employees at Elite, even though 8,000 people work there, for example. Wow. Um, there's um, that also becomes a big problem because it's a law that you have to pay someone's health care and you have to pay someone's uh, pension if they work there. That's a federal law. But if you are hired through one of these subcontractors, like uh, something called a cooperative, what happens is since you're part of a so-called cooperative, and I'm using hand quotes here too now, um, you're the part owner of your cooperative. And so either, even though you don't get any benefits of uh, profit sharing or anything, you now have to pay your own health insurance. And um, maybe after working there for 20 years, you look to go get your pension so you can retire and you find out that the cooperative never paid anything. And, um, you know, elite's not responsible because they, they didn't, um, you know, they didn't employ you. Um, so so let's let's pause here for a second, people. I'm going to do this occasionally, Nate, where I just want to pause everyone. I mentioned these long stem red roses at a grocery store. A dozen for six dollars. Retail. Consider that. That's what we're talking about. We're, we're talking direct to consumers. 50 cents a stem for a, a flower. In this case, a rose. How did we think that happened? We're starting to to hear some things and put yourself in this position at your own work, at your own whatever, or people you know. And this is what we're we're dealing with as far as the structure of these companies currently. 
take us through this, Nate. Who who goes and works at the flower farms? What ages are we talking about? What gender are we talking about? Who primarily is making up this workforce? So over two thirds of the workforce are women. Um, often they are single heads of household, and um, the age range is pretty. Um, I mean, for the, we we interviewed people who were anywhere between. Uh, 17 and 69 who were working in the flower industry. Child labor used to be more of a problem than it is now. Um, and, but yeah, it, it's a workforce that's primarily women. Um, they pretty much all earn a minimum wage, which is $260 a month. Um, if in some cases, when uh, enough workers have attempted to form a union, the employer has come back and created a company union, a fake union, and told workers that if they sign um, what's called a collective pact, they will earn $3 a month more than um, anyone else. And the condition is that you can't be in a union. Um, but so, so let me pause you again, because yeah. I keep having to pause you here. Some of these numbers, you know, uh, so you're saying we already established that the average worker is at least over 40 hours a week, but we know we can we can even get to 84 or more during these peak periods, and we're earning $260 a month on average for people. So, and sometimes I see this number, and maybe it's a little thrown off for people because we're, we're we're talking about this in U.S. dollars. Put that in, in Colombian, I believe, what pesos is the currency in Colombia, correct? Sure. I mean, pesos is going to sound like a lot more. It's 800 and about 20,000 pesos because uh, one, $1 is equivalent to about 3,200 pesos in Colombia at the moment. Um, so, so what would be a for a typical person who lives in or around Bogota, what would be considered a, a living wage in like U.S. dollars? Do you have a, a, a picture of that for us? Yeah. Um, so for a family of four, um, a living wage would be somewhere closer to about, or, 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 or the poverty line rather is about um, four hundred dollars. Um, that that for a family of four, um, they need to be earning four hundred dollars to be above the poverty line. So. Folks who are earning $260 and supporting a family of four, including themselves, are well below the poverty line in Colombia. I mean, just let that sink in. And we're, we haven't even started talking about the actual work yet. We're just talking about it in a very broad brushed. This is how many hours I'm working. Now this is when I'm being paid. And I think, Nate, in your work, I would have to imagine here in Colombia that one of the things that can be difficult to communicate to people is that difference that, you know, people sometimes hear this and they go, oh, well, I'm sure $260 is a lot of money in Colombia that, oh, well, you know, the cost of living is probably far lower. Is that something that you think sometimes is hard for people to wrap their heads around that? No, $260 is nothing in Colombia also. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that if you're looking at it, a family of four, that's $2 per day, which is, uh, 
which is nothing. I mean, it's, you know, my apartment in Bogota, um, much cheaper than my apartment in New York, uh, certainly, but it's also, um, not even, yeah. I I mean, people can not survive off of that amount of money that that Colombia is a developing country, but it is not a country that, uh, is one of the poorest of the poor. So that, so we, we don't have a living wage that we're being paid. Mm -mm. We don't really have any recourse as far as worker benefits go. We know our pensions may be in jeopardy. Now let's get to, to this part of it. We're working these hours. What are we looking at? I mean, and what's, cause I will say, and, and people have heard me talk about this this week and i'll open up more about it on this podcast there was recently a uh pretty influential floral designer who went on a tour of a flower growing facility actually in ecuador but what are we looking at conditions wise i mean is this like a a pristine disney world that we're talking about nate is this just working conditions as far as the actual physical locations that we're working in well, so um, that depends somewhat on the facility. And I also have to be clear that the flower companies are generally not very open about um, allowing people onto their facilities. Um, you see flower farms everywhere and right next to it. And they have security guards sometimes armed in front of the facilities. And right next to it, you see someone growing produce. And um, there's giant walls around the flower farms, and then all the other agriculture. You could just walk into the place if you felt like it. So um, I actually have only been on one flower farm. Um, most of the stuff that I'm telling you is from the 425 workers that we interviewed, and the many others who I uh, work with on a frequent basis. But um, I, to get into the kind of conditions, they pretty much universally employ a Fordist model of production. So they, um, you have one job and you are constantly doing that same job all the time. So if you're cutting flowers, your job is to take some pretty heavy shears and just squeeze them all day and uh, cut the flowers and then dip them into some kind of uh, chemicals so that they are preserved for a little bit longer and then take them to the next place um, to the cold room. If you're in the cold room and you're sorting, literally all day you're um, taking um, flowers, measuring them very quickly, and sorting thousands of flowers per day to make sure that you know no one at Walgreens is getting a long stem rose mixed with another rose that's not as long. Um, and, and we've already established that these cold sorting rooms are kept at like 38 degrees. Yeah, 36. We're in these yeah. in this cold chain that you mentioned. And I also wanted to ask you, and I know in the United States we've sadly implemented some of these as well. Are there agricultural gag laws that the Colombian government has set up to prevent people from actually visiting some of these facilities? Is this in, in it all, is this just a private business decision or does the Colombian government itself actually have some protection with that as well? Um, it's interesting you mentioned the ag gag laws. My close friend was one of the people who filmed a lot of the chickens being like, 
uh, I don't know, in Iowa or something being just caged into things. And then they passed some law to prevent um, videos from being taken anymore because of him. Mm-hmm. But um, the, it, it, no, it, in Colombia, it's, it's definitely more of, uh, I, I think that that's the, the owners who are um, guarding them so closely. I mean, it is private property, so I can't just go onto their property. It's a private facility, so I can't go on there. Um, yeah. So, so we have over we so we've spoken to over 400 employees through the report you you you've done. We're we're working in these cold rooms primarily. So how many hands, how many employees are going to touch that rose that we're walking through here now where we're trying to get a feel for the actual process of what we're doing? Um let's see. There's the there's the folks who are sort of cloning it, and then there's the people who are cutting it. There's probably someone else before who's uh, checking on uh, to make sure that the flowers don't have any illnesses. Then um, it gets dethorned, then it gets sorted, then it gets uh, packed or, or wrapped, then it gets packed. Then it's probably like between eight and ten people who are at least before we even get to Columbia, then it, then it gets put on a truck, then it gets unloaded from the truck. So it's probably like 10 people who are uh, touching each rose. So, and when we're, and when we're working at the facility in Columbia, mm-hmm. if we're, if we're dethorning the roses, that's all we're doing. Like we're not, you know, today we're dethorning and tomorrow we're doing something else. No, every day we're doing this job. And that becomes really problematic because what you see is that depending on what kind of job you have, it's very predictable what kind of occupational health injury you're going to have. So if you're cutting the roses, you're going to get carpal tunnels or tendinitis because you're just squeezing these shears nonstop all day very quickly. And so um, then if if you're sorting the roses, it's actually you have to lift it up high and send it down this thing. and so everyone who sorts the roses ends up with this thing called torn rotator cuff. And um, the way that I actually got involved with this was because I went to, on Valentine's Day in Colombia, the flower workers do this thing called uh, International Flower Workers Day, where they sort of have a celebration for themselves after their hard work. And um, the, the, the speaker who opened up the uh, kind of conference said, she welcomed everyone. She says, um, how many people here started a career in flowers many years ago and now find themselves much less beautiful than they were before, before and feeling much older than we should at this age? Um, I'd ask everyone to raise your hands, but I know that so many of us have carpal tunnel syndrome or torn, torn rotator cuffs that we can't even lift up our arms. And um, everyone kind of laughed, but it it was really kind of striking to see a room full of people who were, you know, many of whom were my age in their thirties and had the kind of mobility of my grandmother. Um, it was really, that was like very disturbing to see. Well, and I think that's a big part of this, Nate, that we're, you know, there's so many industries that are faceless, uh, essentially. And that, that is really what I'd like us to do here is, these flowers that we're talking about that are in the grocery store, they're in, you know, 
we're never going to get a sponsorship from Walgreens, Nate. I don't know if you realize that after this, but you and I both, we're not going to get it. So any of these places that we're talking about, that so many hands and physical labor have gone into this. And I continually have talked throughout this series, is it all flowers, about the economy, the work, everything that goes in to growing a flower is not this image on Instagram of you holding this giant bouquet of flowers. That's not it. There's a lot that gets us there. So let's, let's go into that room because clearly you were there that day mm-hmm. and, it, and it really impacted you. Who are the people in the room? You know, again, age range. Are, are, if, we, if we were in this room, Nate, are we going to look at these people and like you said, there's someone in their 30s and go, man, what, what did you do your whole life? Are you like a performer, a former like boxer or football player? I mean, are there, is it noticeable? It, are these people physically noticeable that they've gone through a real physical challenging job or, or thing in their life? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it's really um, striking. I sitting and, and talking to a woman who is the same age as me. She had two daughters and, um, you, you know, she's having a hard time even getting up out of a chair. And um, she told me a story that uh, basically she had, she, she, she got a occupational health injury where she had a torn rotator cuff and she was no longer able to do the same job. So sometimes what will happen is that Workers will have to file for something called, uh, I mean, it's basically disability. Um, But the company's contract with the organization that will determine whether or not you have a disability, and if they say that you have too many employees who have disabilities, um, they'll charge the companies more money. And so the companies will then threaten to say, oh, we're going to um, go with a new healthcare provider if you say that too many people are injured at our workplace. So um, she, with, with this woman, she had she, she went there. She actually got proof that she did have an occupational health injury. She was put on a medical restriction for a short amount of time. And then the company said she's no longer injured. And then the next day, the company fired her. Um, she then got a new job, but was subcontracted and can no longer uh, have any of the kind of protections to um, not do the job that's exacerbating her injury. And she needs to work. And so she continues to just uh, harm herself in that way. Um, I met another person who was hit in the head with a machine in the cold room processing place. She went home and had a really bad headache. Three days later, um, Half of her body was paralyzed. Um, she was also found to have an occupational health injury. But um, when she went back to work uh, 170 days later, and if you have 180 days, you can get permanent disability status, um, they, they fired her. And she's still disabled. I went and visited her at her house, and she didn't have anything to eat. A friend of hers had, uh, who had a small potato farm had allowed her to go with her family and pick some potatoes. And um, that was, you know, they were happy about that because that was the only thing that they could eat. How old is this woman that we're talking about, Nate? She's under 40 years old. This is where I, I said this earlier on Instagram. 
this is a difficult conversation for people to have. But it, it's so necessary, and maybe more now than ever. We, you know, with the the climate of you know domestically in the U.S., but globally beyond that. So we're talking about a woman under forty years of age, and and she is still paralyzed today. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I mean, is there anything? Does she have any ability to any kind of ret- any recourse to to sue this employer, Nate? To Something, I mean, or is this just, or again, is there danger in that for her? Like, is is there literally, if she did that as an individual or found someone willing to help her, would there again, getting back to the subject of, would she put herself at even more potential risk? Yeah, um, there's not a lot of recourse um, to that. She actually did sue the company and um, more than two years later, there has not been any kind of resolution to it. I mean, I just really have to emphasize that the institutions are pretty weak. And so people will go through the processes of uh, trying to remedy their situation in a legal way. And um, there just aren't results. There's um, we, we were talking about the subcontracting thing where it's illegal to subcontract people who are not um, who are doing core missional work. And there's actually never been a case where a company's been fined for doing that, even though this law has existed since we passed a free trade agreement with Colombia in 2012. Um, that was one of the concessions that they made was that they have to start hiring people directly. And um, no one's ever been prosecuted for that law. A company's never been fined. Well, and, and so let's put this in a timeline, because I think this is one of the things occasionally you'll see out there with subjects. The report you did, you completed in 2017. Yeah. So this isn't like what Nate and I are talking about is like, well, that was back then. No, this is going on. And as Nate said at the very beginning, you just went back to Columbia. This is ongoing. This isn't like in, in 2012 yep. when they, uh, they, they, they passed the Colombian uh, uh, trade agreement again. That like, oh, all of a sudden everything got cleaned up and everything's hunky-dory now. People smiles all around. No, this is going on today. The the woman that you're you're speaking of, this is going on today to her, to her family, and she has no recourse. Yeah, and nothing to eat. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it, it, and I think so. Other people see that stuff, and um, they just kind of have to try to push through. And so, um, they're yeah, they they, they don't really have. Uh, a, a lot of good options um, that, you, you know, I mean, I, trying to organize to improve conditions has been quite futile there. I mean, as I mentioned, there's 130,000 workers and none are covered by a collective bargaining agreement. I'm sure your viewers have very different opinions on the utility of unions, but uh, it's hard to imagine that in a labor sector that big that zero people would want to form a union. Uh, to improve their conditions, it's that really it's completely 100% suppressed. Any ability to try to transform and advocate for yourself as an individual or collectively. Well, and and this is one of the things that it branches out. And, and, you know, obviously, Nate, we're all aware at this point that we're in this super polarized political universe we're living in. This isn't even a political commentary on anything. This is simply like we're, we're we're on human rights type issues here. Yeah, that if if you're a worker 
and we're seeing these kind of conditions. If you're if you're injured on the job, uh, you know these are things that as Americans we obviously take for granted. Mm-hmm. And, we and we're like in this. Div- um, yeah, uh, well, other institutions that uh, protect us, and also just a collective understanding that certain things are not okay. Well, and I wanted to bring this up to you because this is something that I noticed on this little Instagram tour that I was noticing of the International Flower World. Do you think there was at one point in the research I was doing, there was a narrative that talked about uh, like chemical use in a lot of these uh, farms and that at first, oh, this is horrible, this is evil, the chemical part of it. And then there was a bit of a spin to that, that, oh, well, we've cleaned up a lot of that. So see, everything's good now. Have you observed any of that, that almost that was used as a little bit of a uh, a bit of a false narrative that, oh, see, yeah, we had some problems then, but it's all better now because we got rid of the evil chemicals and the hazmat suits and all of those things. I mean, there's definitely a lot of hazmat suits still in there. I mean, I went to a farm three weeks ago and um, yeah, there's people who are spraying all the stuff with chemicals and they also, because like one person told me a story that apparently I'm not a farmer, but um, they told me that the flowers hadn't bloomed um, that they needed for Valentine's Day. They had this big shipment. And um, so they actually just lit a large fire in the greenhouse, which heated it up to the point where some of the flowers would open. And um, there's a lot of people who were inside when that was happening and they all got really sick. Um, I, I mean, I, and, and Nate, that was three weeks ago. That was, that was, that was three, three weeks ago. That was, this isn't again. I mean, everything I, I see out here is like, oh, well, you know, it's all better now. That was really, you know, the, the, the point that I want to make here for people. This was three weeks ago mm-hmm. that people are telling you this story and there's no motive for these people to share this with you. No. Um, and there's. I mean, I, I do have to say, I think that the amount of temp, like pesticides and chemicals that have been used have decreased. Um, part of that is due to sort of uh, international pressure. And I think part of it is because they've actually just learned how to grow stuff differently. But there it is still very ubiquitous. Um, I think a kind of larger in newer issue is actually water the lack of water that is uh or the amount of water that's being used by the companies in order to grow these flowers right so um Bacatativa, for example which is right outside of bogota which is a major flower town has greenhouses everywhere and it's also a pretty substantial sized town um i remember in 2015 when i was living there there were massive protests in the square because um People didn't have access to water. They didn't have access to drinking water anymore. And meanwhile, the farms are just using as much water as they want. They're drilling into the ground and um, taking groundwater out. And um, people don't have any water to drink at their home. Um, As a result, because some of these landscapes, the sort of waterways are being sucked dry, there's actually. new kind of ways that the companies are looking to move to different re- regions where they still have a lot of water because a lot of the water has been sort of sucked up in some of the places that have been growing flowers for like 40, 50 years. Wow. So, so 
Okay, let's again, let's pause on this one for a second, Nate. What we're looking for here is the original theory by like David Cheever is that the the latitude of Bogota gives a, a or the region mm-hmm. gives a 12 month a year growing cycle. The elevation as we head into the Andes gives adequate sunlight. It's not as hot as other parts, slightly more temperate. But he really didn't talk anything about water. No. And maybe that becomes the resource that there's only a finite amount for. So are we maybe now, as you're saying, like now they're starting to see, okay, well, wait a second. This water thing might be sort of a, a stumbling block for us. Yeah. I mean, you, you don't really run out of sunshine or have any control over that, but water is a limited resource. And as these um, farms have just continued to expand everywhere, they're uh, making it difficult for people to live there and even to produce their own product. And as a result, you're going to see a growth in Medellin, in uh, Boyacá, and in other areas that haven't uh, had their land exploited as much. I mean, until the kind of boom of the flower industry there, it was a more diverse agricultural area where people would farm cattle or farm fruits and vegetables and have a more symbiotic relationship with the land. And now it's a monoculture and there's only so much water that can be sucked out of there. Do you have any theories on why this seems like is I've seen on the flip side of this, like the organization American grown flowers has some literature out there and some resources about how quickly the domestic American flower production industry went away. Essentially Mm -hmm. why this was so fast. That that's one of the things for me that I've just been like, how did this happen so quickly? And you know, quickly in, in a relative sense, but it feels like in the last 20, 25 years that it went from being a small part of maybe the agricultural mix in Colombia to now a huge part of it. Well, yeah, I mean, I I mean, I think the main thing, the main cost for anyone is the cost of labor. And if you're paying someone um I mean, like I said at the top of the interview, uh, when this shifted in 1966, um, someone was making $16 an hour in California or Florida. They're making 82 cents an hour in Colombia. You know, uh, today, I I don't know what a farm worker gets paid in the States, but if we're going to get $15 an hour minimum wage soon, that's going to be a whole lot more than uh, $10 a day uh, that you're paid um, or $8 a day to live off of. And so, I mean, I think that that's a huge part of it. Another part of it is just uh, there was a significant amount of support from our government and the so-called Flores, which is the um, sort of conglomeration of all the different flower companies. Uh, they're their uh, industry mouthpiece. They, they, they did a lot of work to make the shipping very fast. Um, To fly from Bogota to Miami is closer than flying from San Francisco to New York. So um, shipping things became a more efficient way with the cheap labor, I think, to to do this and undercut people who are making flowers in an extremely different way. 
Were there any U.S. government dollars involved in creating or subsidizing any of what's gone on with the flowers in Colombia that you're aware of? Oh, yeah. Many hundreds of millions of dollars were uh, invested in that. I mean, initially to uh, stop what they were concerned about communism, uh, later to stop, um, you know, supposedly under the guise of uh, not uh, allowing drugs. And then also, I mean, a huge amount of dollars just in terms of we had tariffs on flowers until uh, not too long ago, right? So that made it harder. Uh, it made it a little more competitive for someone who was paying someone a living wage in the States to actually produce their stuff here as opposed to uh, in Colombia, because now there's no trade barrier to that. And, and, and if, as someone who's clearly spent a tremendous amount of time in the country, Nate, I have to imagine that for you, you probably, because as the numbers we went over early on here in the conversation, there, there is a path for Colombia-grown flowers, but a path that would include people being paid living wages and having workers' rights and maybe just borderlining human rights. I mean, there is this path. I mean, that does exist. Do you see it that way? I, I do see it that way. And I also just want to clarify that the none of the workers who – when I have these conversations with people, people hear this stuff and they're like, wow, what should I do? I should you know, not buy flowers um, because that's uh, – you know, it sounds really awful. And none of the workers there are really asking for that, um, to be clear, right? They're not asking for an international boycott of their flowers. It is their livelihood. And um, they're not organized enough to do something like that, but um, it, it, and actually reap the benefits of uh, doing a massive strike or something. So there, I mean, I think that there is a pathway forward. Some of it was laid out in what was called the Labor Action Plan. When we signed this free a trade agreement with Colombia, there was some things that were supposed to happen that were uh, included directly employing people respecting uh, workers' rights and uh, eliminating retaliation against workers. Uh, it identified flowers as one of the uh, five key priority sectors to improve uh, wages, working conditions. And um, it actually laid out a pretty good roadmap, but unfortunately in the last version of it, it was gutted so that if those things are not respected, trade continues. There's no kind of kill switch that if we... Uh, aren't following any of the sort of uh, ideals that we just laid out that uh, there would be any stop to production. So, I mean, yes, I think that there is a way forward, but it has to involve um, listening to workers, allowing them to have just sort of the universal right to advocate for themselves, organize. Uh, you know, these companies are making tons of money. There's uh, definitely enough to go around, at least for people to be able to eat and support their families. Well, and you mentioned, and we're going to attempt to to tackle, uh, I think, a difficult subject here for you and I to speak to, Nate, but most of the workforce being women. Yeah. The, And I think that's what's so frustrating. And I'm sure for yourself, for me, and in, in researching and starting to go down this uh, very deep dive on the subject, 
there seems to be that the economics is is not the problem here for the the people that own and control these flower farms and now almost single channel from front to back uh, as it gets to the retail marketplace. There's plenty of profiteering going on here. It's the fact that that does exist, that this isn't a business maybe with the slimmest of margins that can't afford things and people should just be lucky they have a job at all. Uh, it's not really what this industry looks to be. Nope. But we have this female workforce. We are already grueling hours, grueling physical uh, demands, incredibly low pay, no recourse. Let, let's go into, because I know in your interviews and in your report that sexual assault, um, sexual harassment, these were subjects that, that did unfortunately come up. How, how, prevalent how common was that in your interviews when you were putting the report together yeah um so it was pretty common even though the majority of uh the workers are women um by far the majority of the supervisors and um i'd imagine all the owners but uh they're they're men right and so it, it's not maybe totally different than any sexist society that we live in, including our own, where, uh, you know, people in positions of power are generally men. And um, the way that that was uh, sort of expressed was sometimes um, through forms of sexual harassment. So to give you a few examples, it was a common adage would uh, be a supervisor would tell a worker, um, you know, if you don't go on a date with me, I'm not going to renew your contract because, as I mentioned earlier, people aren't actually employed at the place. They're employed by some third party thing. Um, and when I was just down there, a worker told me about how she was sexually assaulted by her supervisor. Um, she went to HR and told them that she'd been sexually assaulted. And um, HR came back to her the next day and said, well, we can't really corroborate whether or not this happened because we weren't there, but, um, you know, we'll keep an eye on him. This is the first time anything like this has ever happened, uh, or a report about him. So, um, you know, he's going to stay, but we'll, you know, we'll try and figure it out. And then she talked to some of her other coworkers and two other people had also reported the same guy for sexually assaulting them. Um, well, and we're talking about clearly as th there's a culture here. We're already aware of this. I mean, we, we've heard this in relationship to uh, trying to organize for labor. We've heard this in, in relationship to recourse for any kind of on the job injuries. So clearly the culture here of anybody that's impacted by any kind of sexual harassment of any kind at, at any scale is going to be to say nothing because yeah. you have you have no recourse. And, and we've already painted the picture that you're not an actual employee that you're in one of these weird subcontractor kind of situations. I mean, in your interviews, you know, we did you get a sense of that? Like, when, especially when this subject comes up, that there are, are so many of these incidents that probably go completely unreported to anyone there. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I'm trying to find the... Um, the actual number, uh, it, it was, yeah, it was, it was 20% of the women surveyed, uh, had a family member or a coworker who was, uh, sexually harassed at work. Um, 
And yeah, e- even their relationships with their supervisors was different. So um, more than twice as many women as men um, reported being uh, harassed by their supervisor, not necessarily sexually, but uh, just having a very uh, we, we rated it from how's your relationship with your supervisor, uh, very positive, positive, uh, neutral, unsatisfactory, or very unsatisfactory. And um, over 35% of women said it was uh, very unsatisfactory and um, only 20% of men did. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, there, there's a significant gender gap in that. And um yeah, I mean, it, it's a huge problem. It's a problem that's not unique to that industry, but because it has so many women who are working in it, it's uh, it's more pronounced. Well, and that would be, you know, we, we clearly see this, as you said, throughout all sectors, but here we have a predominantly female workforce that we're dealing with in an industry that has created every obstacle it possibly can for you as an employee to have any recourse on any action mm-hmm. is there. And we already, and we've also established the fact that you, if you do try to organize labor, that literally your life could be at risk. Did you run across any cases of people that had direct ramifications from reporting something like a harassment or, or sexual harassment or anything like that? Yeah. I mean, a, a number of uh, people told us that, when they'd be asked by their supervisors to go on a date with them and they said no, either because they were married or because they just didn't want to, um, that, that they were treated differently afterwards and that they were not, uh, employed there a few months later. Um, that was very common. What about pregnancy? I know I saw that in your report that if a woman is pregnant, and she yeah. does try to continue working. I mean, what does that look like? So, um, yeah, be, because people are hired on these uh, short-term fictitious contracts, uh, they look at it and say, okay, well, this person is pregnant and we don't want to uh, give them any paid time off. And um, they might move a little bit slower if they have a baby in their stomach. And so we're going to not hire them. Or we're going to uh, not renew their contract after they um, become pregnant. Um, because, uh, I mean, many people told me that uh, they're in their interviews, they'd be asked if they um, were planning on being pregnant again, how old their kids were, um, things of that nature that could potentially be uh, getting in the way of being the most productive uh, sort of widget that you could. And really, that term that you just used is really the way this is is run, essentially, right, Nate? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is just a machine. That's all we're really concerned about. We're not treating people with like uh, a human element here. We're just seeing them as this is how we get flowers from point A to point B. Yeah, I, I mean, definitely, and that's why when people try to uh, disrupt that in any way by uh, advocating for themselves, that they're promptly fired. I mean, there's a a law in Colombia, because of this sort of uh, bad history of uh, so many people being uh, assassinated for being labor leaders, that if you are an elected member of your union, that you 
have a higher bar uh, in order to be fired. Um, and in one case on Sunshine Flowers, um, I was working with these people and three of them were elected to the executive board of their union and were trying to make some changes. People were very unhappy there. And the they they prevent, presented a legal document to their employer saying, we are elected members of our union, so we have this special protection. And within that week, every single person who presented that card was fired. Um, you know, over a year later, the case is still unresolved. Those people were direct employees of the company, and um, they all had to go work somewhere else in the meantime and be subcontracted. But um, yeah, the, the, any kind of uh, attempt to disrupt that or, or challenge that or make the production better so that uh, it could still be efficient, but that they could actually uh, live well is uh, stifled at every turn. And they have, I mean, another interesting thing I was talking to them, they were saying that um, in the early 2000s, there was a major change in the way that uh, the farms were run. There um, became these people who started showing up everywhere who were called agricultural engineers, but really their only job is, say, in a greenhouse, there's 30 people working there. There's someone whose uh, job it is to just walk around and take notes and observe them. And if they go to the bathroom, um, you know, more than once in four hours, or if they go stop to get a drink of water, that's notated. They write that down. And then um, when they're debriefing with them later, uh, talking to them, they'll say, well, we noticed that you went to the bathroom this many times, and that's, uh, you, you know, getting in the way of your productivity, and we're not going to be able to keep you on. Um, so, so that really sort of, that apparently changed when uh, Dole, uh, who is no longer involved in the flowers, they, they came in at a certain point, they owned a huge share of the flower market. Um, and that's the norm now. Wow. Is your view of this that the Colombian government keeps its distance from actually, like we, we've talked about, where there are these cases, they don't do anything with it, some of these agreements, they have gutted out, because they they recognize the fact that so many of these companies that they're dealing with in this sector and probably many others are U.S. based and these are U.S. dollars that are at in their view at risk again in finger quotes. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that the Colombian government is. Uh, I mean, I think their interests are more in line with the uh, multinational flower companies than, uh, their citizens, um, just as our kind of American aid and support is more directed towards, uh, supporting the industry rather than the people who are making that industry, uh, successful. Uh, absolutely. And I have to imagine that the growth of the Kenyan flower trade, which is a whole other conversation, probably Nate, is putting some pressure on the Colombian market where they see that as a growing competitor globally and that they're trying to do everything in their power to make sure that they don't lose any percentage of their market share, which I think at the beginning we established was 70%. So, um, 
You know, that's interesting. And I've kind of heard mixed things about that. Um, when I was kind of, I, I had the opportunity to actually go to a farm the other week and speak with uh, some people who are major players in the flower trade. And I, I asked them that question. And what they said was they actually were not particularly concerned about it because of the the cargo costs of shipping something from Africa was actually so high that it made it not really worth it. And so most of that market was going to Europe, whereas uh, at least in Colombia, the majority of the flowers, the large majority, almost 80% are shipped to the United States. Um, and then so some other large bulk of that goes to Canada. Um, they do have a share in Europe as well, but it's smaller, and they're mainly competing, I think, in Europe with uh, the African trades. Uh, I, I've heard mixed things, but I know that on the ground, the workers are always hearing this person in Kenya is only making $2 a day, and they're making as many flowers as you. And so at least that's a a perception that people have, is that they're competing mm. with uh, folks who are earning even less than them. Um, the reality of the market, I think, is uh, perhaps a little more uh, complicated than that. But it, they, they, that, that's so interesting you say that because you could see an employer or supervisor or someone using that as a leverage. You know, it's one of those, well, you should consider yourself lucky. Yeah, of course. And I mean, I'm sure, you know, it, it would happen in the States too, with uh, people who are growing tomatoes or something. And it's like, well, we're paying the people in Mexico like a tenth of what we're paying you to so stop complaining. Um, they, you know, that's just part of, you know, these huge open free markets. Is there any organization, either domestically in the States or internationally, that you see that is actually trying to bring any kind of light to this subject at all? Yeah, um, I'm going to sort of answer that in two ways. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that there are some really good organizations in Colombia that are worker-led. Uh, uh, Casa de las Flores, uh, the House of the Flower Workers, is a place that uh, publishes a monthly newspaper that mainly goes to flower workers, but they also communicate broadly with the um, international people who take an interest in that. Sintrainagro, um, which is like a group that's, uh, it's a labor union down there. Um, Onof as well. Um, I think there's, I, I, it's challenging though, right? Like I work for an NGO that, uh, for the port workers, we got the ILWU to uh, sponsor them in Colombia. Yeah, the oil workers, we got the steel workers in a Canadian oil worker union to sponsor them. And when we did this project with uh, the flower workers, there's not a sort of uh, group in the United States that uh, is of a similar scale. And so we actually had an artist who used a lot of flowers pay for the research of the project, which was different. Um, hmm. So th there's not like an organized uh, group of people who takes a significant interest of this in the States that I'm aware of. Um, however, I also want to note that uh, there are some groups that are heavily promoting themselves as such. Uh, to name one in particular, uh, Rainforest Alliance. So if you go to Whole Foods and you buy 
flowers, there's probably going to be a little green frog on it. Or um, if you get coffee, same thing, right? It's sort of like a fair, it, it presents itself as a fair trade type thing where you're um, paying a little bit of a premium to make sure that it's a product that's uh, ecologically sound, that uh, certain standards are not only met, but uh, that they're above the sort of lowest standards. Workers are maybe paid a little bit more, things like that, right? So um, I know in the past, I've often gone to um, look for products that have that because I am concerned and I don't know how things look when I'm buying my coffee or my flowers or chocolate or anything else. But um, I do have to say, and this is one of the most disappointing things that we found, was that uh, Rainforest Alliance in particular, who represented um well over half of the farms that uh we looked at there was literally zero difference between the farms that they certified and the farms that weren't certified in terms of the working conditions none sometimes they were worse and um for for me that was like extremely offensive and um we contacted them and went uh kind of got a a group of workers together to talk to Rainforest Alliance specifically about their, their um, a number of violations of their own codes of conduct that were going on in the farm. Uh, to name a few, they have a limit on the amount of uh, hours that people can be working that were uh, systematically violated. Uh, obviously, the freedom of association was something that was a huge concern to us. We presented a lot of evidence and clear examples, including lawsuits of when people had been fired for forming a union, um, that people were not paid a cent more than the minimum wage, even though the company here is promoting themselves as a uh, sort of do-gooder that's, uh, you know, you or me are paying more for the products under the understanding that some of that's going to go to the worker. And that was definitely not happening. So we presented this information to Rainforest Alliance, and they said, well, we actually aren't the ones who are certifying the farms. It's not us. We're sort of just a brand. Um, we subcon- which, we've, which I've sadly been seeing this a little bit more than I would like to, Nate, mm-hmm. where we see these, they, they, as you just said, they call themselves brands. You know, everybody's probably familiar with it, with like fair trade products like coffee or, or uh, chocolate through cacao flowers and yet these groups that are created just sort of go oh no we're just responsible for the pretty logo and that's it say what so so when they say that to you i mean where does the conversation go from there so it went to a lot of interesting places and um so the first thing that we did was we said there there has to be some kind of recourse you guys have these standards that you publish online that say um, we're doing all this stuff. If you're not doing any of that stuff, that's literally false advertisement. That's essentially theft to American consumers because they're paying more for something that they're not getting. Um, so, you know, we said we want to uh, talk to you with a group of workers. And they said, you know, it would really be better if you talked to this uh, group that actually does the certification that no one's ever heard of before. Um, because they're the ones that do it. And we're like, well, we think you should be involved in the conversation because you're the brand that everyone knows. So we initially met with the, the group. We presented them with all kinds of information about uh, 
just uh, uh, half their codes being violated. Um, everything from the you know hours worked, sexual harassment to freedom of association to uh, not getting the kind of gloves or uh, that they need or the equipment to protect themselves to not doing the occupational uh, exercises to protect them from injuries. And, you know, they, 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 they listened to us and, you know, a month went by and they didn't do anything. So we circled back with rainforest and then rainforest. Um, I mean, they basically just said that, you know, they hear us, but that they don't have anything. It, 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 they're only doing marketing. They, they, they don't have any kind of, uh, actual relationship with the farms. They've never even been to any of these farms. Um, they, they, they literally have no idea. They're just printing a picture of a person who's smiling and uh, putting a little green frog on it and telling an American consumer that this is a, a great thing. And uh, This is a really growing problem, Nate. Yeah. I, 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 you know, so I'll, I'll share something with you that's rather interesting uh, domestically with cut flowers. Yeah. So there are several groups and organizations here. And... There's a particular flower grower in the Pacific Northwest who does these really expensive workshops and I think paints this incredibly idyllic, unrealistic picture of what flower farming, flower growing, and horticulture is, and then proceeds to profiteer $2,000 for an online workshop of an equivalent of what you could find in a Google search. Mm -hmm. And I've been super critical of oh. this um, and have made myself readily available, actually, Tonight, as we record this, I'm going to be doing an Instagram live for aspirational new flower farmers, completely free, um, and really want to make sure that if people get into this, they have a good process with it. Mm -hmm. But what you're, what you're explaining to me here is something that concerns me so much. Steve and Nate could create an Instagram account for Colombian grown flowers. We could take beautiful pictures of flowers and smiling workers from Colombia and create this account and through good social media practices and aptitudes and connecting with the right people, we could grow this account to be pretty sizable. And we could say, Steve and Nate certified flowers out of Colombia are the best. All the workers are happy, smiley people just like these ones. Look for them in your local grocery stores. And then we could leverage these Colombian flower farms and say, hey, you guys pay us X amount of money and we'll continue this Instagram marketing account that makes you guys look so fantastic. Mm -hmm. And Steve and Nate could never have been to one of these flower farms in our entire lives. And like you're saying, could make whatever claims we wanted and have none of them actually live up to any kind of reality at all. I mean, that sounds to me like, you know, an extreme version of what you're talking about, but, but not too extreme. Exactly what I'm talking about. Literally exactly what I'm talking about. A year after uh, we had this exchange with these people, um, the guy got my email confused with someone else that ran a huge orange juice farm and is soliciting his services to try to certify us. Like the, the farms have to pay this branding company rainforest alliance to um put their label on it and he's trying to get me to buy their product which is a a logo like it, it's literally exactly what you're talking about. 
and this is something that we all need to just take a second. Just take a second. And again, I'm losing another sponsorship, Nate. This whole Is It All Flower series that I'm doing is going to be really bad for me business-wise long-term. But the the Whole Foods, we're going to put pictures of farmers up in the store. And we're going to position about eight or ten of them. But most of our products are going to be made in a commercial kitchen somewhere in the universe. And most of our our product in the store now is private label, is a model that a lot of people saw in the grocery retail world grow to the point where Jeff Bezos bought it. And now people see things like this and go, wow, that's great opportunity. We create this marketing brand that we can slap on a product. We can leverage these different categories of agriculture, whatever it might be, and be like, well, if you want to be in Whole Foods, if you want to be there, you've got to be a green product. You've got to be a this product. And for you to be seen as that, you need our logo on. Mm-hmm. Yep. But there's no oversight to any of this, Nate. There's no. no oversight. There's no one regulating this at all. No. Uh, I mean, and I don't want to bum your audience out too much. There certainly are some labels. I think fair trade and equal exchange, they don't operate in the flower fields. But uh, I think from my understanding, you could feel good about purchasing Stuff from there, obviously getting stuff from local people is usually the best option. But um, yeah, there's literally no oversight. And for me, uh, I mean, not only as a person who knows a lot of these Colombian workers and uh, cares about them and has a relationship with them, but also as just an American consumer, I feel really defrauded. Um, Whole Whole Foods also has their own uh, brand called Whole Trade which contracts with elite flowers to put their logo on it to make people feel better. But those same flowers are sold at, you know, a bunch of other supermarkets too, right? There's no difference. And if people aren't getting paid more or uh, getting treated better because they have a whole trade logo on it. And that's something I wanted to ask you about because my fear with some of this as you got into it was that the flowers that we're seeing at retail, at the point of purchase, could be labeled as really whatever they want to be. There, there's no differential here. You don't know if these flowers are grown at Farm A or Farm Z, and that from what you just said, that's also occurring. That there is no real ability to source the supply chain on these. No, def- definitely not. I mean, it is some of the flowers when they're shipped. It's actually interesting. They'll have. In the factory in Colombia, they will have uh, a price. It'll say, I don't know, Wegmans or whatever on it. And it'll say $7.99 for 12 roses. And, um, you know, but it doesn't say where it came from. Um, you do, it, but it, it's interesting because you see the product that's on the shelf without any sort of, and you're sitting in the place where it's made and there's no kind of information about where it came from. Well, and one of one of the things historically that people have used for agriculture is keeping, you know, the small farm anonymous, you know, in the mm-hmm. supply chain. And now what we're looking at is sort of a 21st century version of this where you are sort of this multinational front to back single channel company and you have no interest in people knowing really who you are, because that way you can sort of create this, you know, cloak and dagger business model shell game kind of thing 
Yeah. So, um, so, so moving forward here, and I'm going to say this because I, I know as this podcast and this content gets out there, Nate, I, I can, I'm pretty good at the game of chess. I can see the backlash coming here that, well, mm-hmm. hey, Steve, you're a local flower grower. Of course, you're against international flowers. And, and, if, and one of the great things about Instagram, if you use it correctly, or any social media, is you can have this documentation. I've been very consistent with what I have said about this. Number one, local flower growers can never have flowers 12 months a year in North America, even in California or Florida. That's still a challenge. There is a huge need for international grown flowers if the demand is there, and clearly it is. Mm -hmm. I think what we're talking about here, though, is living wages, getting these products to market with a little bit more transparency to them, and a consumer awareness that a 50 cent retail per stem red rose at Valentine's Day is not going to associate itself with the cost of living wage for the person who harvested it. That's it. it we're, we're, we're not talking about, oh, be gone, international flowers, be gone. No one's saying that. No, and I, but, I'm not saying it either, even as I outline all these things. I mean, I think that it is an important... Uh, I mean, it's a huge amount of jobs that people need, but they, don't just, they just don't need to be paid so little. Um, yeah. And when we do the math on this and we break this down and we say, okay, these are people that are harvesting upwards of 3,000 flower stems a day. But at the end of that day, they're being paid, you know, well less than actually $10. That when we do that math, you see there's no labor involved yeah. as far as cost in this flower. The, the cost is in what people are experiencing, the, the actual worker, that the actual product is an incredible the cost it's incurring is inconsequential. So of course at, you know, 0.001 of one cent kind of math that we could come up with if we had a calculator, there's no labor in the product. Absolutely. And also another just interesting anecdote is that when I started living in Columbia in 2013, the, uh, peso was like $1 is worth about, uh, 1500 pesos and now it's uh, about 3200 pesos so um the value of colombian money has uh, halved itself so an american company that you, you essentially now need to pay people half as much as you did before and the, the the costs have reduced by half as much um so you're making actually a lot more money and, and this is a conversation, you know, where I think no matter where you land on your voting ballot, we've all got to recognize the fact that when is too much profit too much? At what cost to the individual? Of course. And and that's what we're we're seeing here with this with the cut flower trade. And after our conversation here that we've had today, Nate, I will say to you, I'm a little bit more disgusted with some of these people that I've seen on Instagram over the last month or two. And maybe more than anything, and I don't know if you, you've, you've taken the time, because you've been in this, as you said, I mean, you, you just got back from Columbia again, mm-hmm. on an existential layer here, that I feel like these, a lot of these people that are profiting 
off of this and, and in a way where they're they're clearly aware you know i, I don't believe you to be uh someone who's been a florist or a floral designer for 10, 15, 20 years. And I'm not going to, in a 2019 world, I'm not a real big proponent of saying, well, you didn't know any better. Well, Google people. That you're profiteering off of this, but maybe more than anything, they're almost using the, the flower itself because of its aesthetic, Nate, as like an umbrella and a shield to, to, to all of these issues that we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, ab- absolutely. Like a common adage there is that the Americans get the flowers and we get the thorns. I mean, I, I think it really is a good, I mean, it's a really sort of symbolic thing because the flower is so beautiful and it's used to express feelings of love or compassion. And, um, you, you know, what's behind that is actually also important. And um, I, I think that there is, there is, I think, an appetite for it, um, but I, I think that, uh, I mean, what the Colombian people always say is that just they want um, people to hear their stories and to listen to them and recognize sort of where the things are coming from. And they think that if uh, people sort of understood them as other human beings who are just trying to support their families and uh, produce something that everyone likes, that... Uh, you know, there'd be a little more support to uh, be able to change their situation. When when you, as we wrap up here, Nate, when you finished your report in 2017, you put it out there, who did it go to? What what was the response that you got from it? And what, what people and what was the feedback? Well, um, I mean, the report was sort of, I mean, it, it's a bit technical. And I guess the idea was that it was going to go more to folks like yourself. The reason that I was just down there was because I was with a, an author who's uh, quite well known, who doesn't want to um, say what project she's working on right now. So I'm not going to out her, but uh, she's going to be coming out with a book next year that um, looks at flowers and some of the more existential things, but also some of the labor conditions and um so I, I think, you know, even though we wrote it for a general audience, most of the people have been sort of the people like yourselves who are able to communicate in a, a good way to a larger audience. And that's um, those are the kind of people we've been talking to. And did you were you and I'm going to I'm going to put this out here, Nate, mm-hmm. I'm not going like to mince words. How about that? Mm-hmm. I I was a little surprised and i didn't see it out there in more places even in relationship to uh this past valentine's day mm-hmm. uh it's one of these right we're dealing with you know still 20th century media in a 21st century world where you know they all get out and talk about hey remember your husband's got to get you valentine's day you know all these you know tropes that they've been doing for 100 years yeah. and yet i saw some reports about you know the colombian flower trade and it was all just so smiley nate yeah. That d- does that still surprise you that there's not even a tiny bit of balance to a lot of the 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 so-called media news reports that are out there on the subject? I mean, it kind of surprises me until I think about the sort of amount of money that each side has, right? Like um I our report or I've spent a lot of time just taking journalists around and talking to workers and on mother's day or valentine's day 
a few will publish a report or uh, an article about um, just what's going on and a, a different look. You look at the Smithsonian or Vice, um, things like that for um, a little bit of that. But um, I mean, right, you have a multi-billion dollar industry that's doing constant PR. And then you have a group of unorganized workers who are getting paid $260 a day who have no access to uh, sort of any international consumers. And, um, you know, I'm not certainly the only link in my tiny NGO of uh, six people, but um, there aren't a lot of uh, people who are kind of hitting this drumbeat. And uh, so I really want to thank you and uh, recognize, appreciate that you're sort of taking the time to sort of look behind uh, where the flowers are coming from. And it's a subject that, again, I, you know, I, I, I was writing something the other day, Nate, and I was balancing myself on words. You ever find yourself there where you're like, okay, is this word too strong? <laughs> should, I, should I avoid this word? Am I hitting this a little bit too on the nose? And the flower, pers- the imagery of flowers gives you this very quickly a polyannic landscape to paint you can very quickly create this narrative and it's not as easy if you were growing soybeans the narrative's not quite as beautiful or as sexy for people sure. and i i think as as you mentioned my my deeper conspiracy theory hat here on this would be that we're also talking about huge retail companies who all have floral divisions and departments and that there's ad sales dollars attached to those huge retail companies so a lot of media companies that have ad sales as their primary funding are going to be like no thank you this is a subject i'd rather not have us talk about have you experienced any of that i mean we don't work in the sort of advertising world but i mean i think we've just experienced it in the sense that it's so sort of monolithic uh how just everything is like, this is fantastic. And, um, you, you know, photos of things that are totally posed and not anything like the reality. I mean, it, it's just sort of uh, the hegemonic uh, advertising empire that, you know, I, I don't really have a role in. Um, and so, I mean, I, I definitely see it, um, but uh, I, I, I'm not. Right. I, I, I don't have the ability to go to Whole Foods and try to present a counter narrative. Um, that's why we're talking. No, that's exactly it. And, and really what this is, is, a, is just a, an effort in awareness for yeah. everyone. That this is the, the kind of thing where you could go in and you could ask. And you know, I had several people I, I asked on Instagram for people had questions for me uh, for the podcast for you. Throw them out there about international flowers. And, um, one of them, which you would expect was, well, what can I do as a consumer? And I I think the primary thing you can do is put pressure on these retailers by just asking the question, should you be the weird person that day who went up to the floral manager and said, where did these flowers come from? Did you know, do you know the working conditions? What farm? Should you be that person? Yeah, you should be. If you want to enact some kind of change on this subject, that these are the things we're going to have to do 
beyond, obviously, you can buy flowers from new people, not deterring that. But when it comes to buying flowers in February and January and December and other parts of the country, you're going to have to take a step somewhere. Is that similar to how you would see the marketplace, Nate, for what consumers can do? Yeah, I mean, I, I think absolutely. I mean, I think that's what I always hear from people is that, you know, they really just want to have people hear their stories to talk to uh, stores when they're buying them and ask questions. And um, yeah, j- j- just think a little more uh, critically. I mean, I think, yeah, obviously buying locally is a great option pretty much anywhere um, for, for any product. And um, definitely with flowers, that's also the case. Um, well, and, 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 and let's go back to the very beginning here, because I'm sure people's heads are swimming at this point, Nate. Mm-hmm. That we established that the poverty line in Colombia was $400 yeah. per month. And that these workers are only being paid $260 per month. So we're, we're well below the poverty line. That these companies that we're talking about, if these the life changing event for someone, you know, it's like let's put put this in your own heads, people. Let, let's use round numbers, Nate. We're earning fifty thousand dollars a year. Yeah. If someone came to you and said, "Hey, I'm going to bump you up to hundred thousand dollars a year," this is life changing money. Yeah. That's what we're talking about here, people. We're talking about going from two hundred and sixty dollars to above four hundred just to get over the poverty. Let's be extra fancy and let's call it five hundred bucks a month. Yeah, it, for for knowing these people, for knowing their living conditions, for knowing, I mean, how impactful is that? Try to give us just a tiny bit as we wrap up here, just a tiny glimpse of if those people went from two sixty to five hundred. I mean, would that be life changing money for them? I mean, I mean that that would be incredible. I mean, I, another thing that we asked was when was the last time your family went on vacation, just to sort of. Uh, you know, hear a little bit more about people's social conditions. And almost no one had been on a vacation that many people had never been on a vacation. And, uh, you know, almost that no one had been on one in a very long time. Um, I think uh, being able to reliably have enough food to eat would be, I mean, people would be able to move into, uh, they'd be able to own their homes. They'd be able to, um, you, you just you pay for the, I mean, a lot of, a lot of them are working and they want their kids to go to school. But I often hear like Facatativa is an hour bus ride away from Bogota. And, um, it costs, it costs like, uh, over $3 round trip to go to Bogota from Faca. So if you're only getting like living off of $8 a day. And one of your family members is going to college and they're spending three of those dollars just taking the bus. Uh, I mean, that, that, that would be a huge difference if you could support your uh, ability to actually go somewhere and get an education because you can't afford to uh, even go to school if you're um, spending like 40 percent of your income on just getting to school. Um, there, there, there would be it would be massive. And that change can clearly happen because no matter where we want to look at this economically, the the dollar chain here, it exists. We're talking about somewhere between a billion dollars plus, 
made that at least gets reported to Columbia gets placed in that corner. But we have numbers floating out here, even from the USDA, that the entire value chain could be over $10 billion. Mm -hmm. There's enough money. I mean, again, I'm I'm trying so hard here, Nate. You can hear me hustling, right? Mm -hmm. I'm trying to put this in perspective for people that in the United States, we would pay a comparable worker in a comparable job. Let's call it. Let's let's use the round number of fifteen, just because it's a popular number at the moment. Mm-hmm. And these people are being paid eight dollars a day. So these companies clearly are, even if we raise that to sixteen dollars a day versus fifteen an hour for U.S. domestic workers. Just, just to are, clarify real quick, they're living off eight dollars a day. They're getting paid about ten. But but yeah. Oh. Yes. So so there so still we have $10 a day versus a $15 minimum wage in the United States. Think about that difference for people. That if suddenly they went to $20 a day versus oh. the company operating out of the United States paying someone $150 a day for a 10-hour workday. Yeah. There's in, it's incredible the margin that we're talking about here that still exists. And we still don't have tariffs on it. We still don't have any of that. We're just saying, give these people at least a living wage for the developing nation that they're in. It, it shouldn't be astronomical of an ask. And I, I think that a lot of your listeners and uh, a lot of flower consumers would be willing to pay an extra like buck or two to have flowers that actually weren't, that, that, that were giving people a living wage and making it possible for them to do the sort of daily business that we enjoy, especially with a product that is used to express um, all these positive feelings. And in future episodes of this series, we're going we're to tackle the subject of florist and floral design and the costing and everything that gets wrapped up into that. But I really want to thank you, Nate, individually, because I know this is clearly something that you yourself became aware of and then became passionate about. And in general, it's a subject that, that clearly needs to be brought out to people more. And I also appreciated the fact that in your report, that it didn't have any slant to it at all. That this was just a very, we interviewed these 400 plus people and this was their experiences. Yeah. This, this wasn't done through some kind of, you know, we didn't have a premeditated view or narrative that we were trying to create that this was what we were told by people that actually lived this yeah i mean thank you great interview uh they yeah they were told that based on the things that the workers the questions that the workers developed as well so i had some presuppositions about what should be asked and then they said, no, 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 no. You got to ask this and you got to ask this and you got to ask this. And it made for a much better report because it was really uh, their report. Um, I just helped translate it into English. Well, we're going to close this one up. I, I want for everyone is we're going to continue this series because there's just so much to this that, that we need to explore about how where we're seeing flowers used as this very grammable content but yet 
it's also being used as a way to shield people from some of the realities of what's going on. And I'm going to close with some levity. Be the person who goes into Whole Foods and says, where did these flowers come from? Who, who, who harvested these flowers? You guys are going around here making all these claims, saying everything's green. You got frogs on things. Tell me more about this. Be that person. And it can eventually enact change. Cheaters, cheating, liars, lie. Without cause or alibi. And they don't know cause they don't care. In love and war, all is fair. Hearts are broken, love goes stale. The real world ain't no fairy tale. Nothing turned out like you thought. Now look at all the time you've lost. You'll never get it back. Oh, you should have known. Most would have realized that. Most would have realized that a long, long time ago.